Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy 4th of July. We have a quiet group today, but that's what you must have celebrated last night, so you're resting right now. Well, listen, I'm excited to uh, be sharing with you. As you know, Pete and Gail are on uh, sabbatical uh, for the summer. It's nice for them to get their batteries recharged as they go forward. And I always appreciate when I get the opportunity to uh, get a chance to share a message from the pulpit. Um, A couple of things, as you know, when you fill in for the pastor, boy, it's a lot of pressure. Because I don't do this on a regular basis, so that means I'm trying to think what's going to be the best thing. I don't want to make a fool of myself up here and have you go, well, I need to pray for that man because he can't quite do this really well. But I was trying to think of some options that I was going to consider. Um, and a couple of things that led me to where we are, we're going to talk about First Peter or Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 today. And I want to challenge you with the phrase, make every effort. Make every effort. I initially was thinking of maybe using Mark 10, uh, 45, a passage that I appreciate where Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think at some point I would love to work on that particular passage because in the context of that passage, it was his disciples that wanted the best seats in the house, right? And then he reminded them, no, there's a better way. And then I was thinking of that song we sang, Come Thou Found. It was written by Robert Robinson in the late 1700s. And what's interesting about that, this was a young man who uh, lost his father. He became an apprentice in England for seven years, learning how to cut hair, Uh, lived a wild life uh, in England, and later, because of uh, Whitfield's uh, ministry, was profoundly affected and came uh, and accepted the gospel of Christ and had really an amazing ministry for about a 30-year period. But it said in his life he had a propensity to wander. And the verse in there that we didn't get a chance to read was, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it for thy courts above. And you know, I think if I take what that line is and put that in, make every effort, maybe we'll have a congruent message today to challenge us to realize that in our faith for Christ, the goal for us again is to make every effort in terms of our obedience to him and growing in him. The Scottish Bible expositor Alexander McLaren once wrote, we may have uh, as much of God as we will. Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber in our hands and bids us to take all that we want. If a man is admitted into the bullion vault of a bank and told to help himself and he comes out with one cent, whose fault is it that he is poor? And I think that analogy holds for us as well, too, in our Christian experience. We're going to find in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 that God gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But I ask you, sometimes, do you feel more wanderer than you do more committed in your walk with Him? I mean, when we think of our Christian life, sometimes in the big scheme of things, are we thinking that we're relevant or that we're irrelevant? Whether you're a jaded student, a burnout businessman, a bone-weary mom, a dog-tired dad, you may all slip into feelings of being unproductive and ineffective, useless and unfruitful. And this happens to believers who have lost their way from pursuing God's meaning and purpose for their lives. 
So Peter now wants to share with us so that we can keep from feeling unproductive, ineffective, and in many cases, useless. You know, this book of 2 Peter is kind of his swan song, really. And he wrote the first book probably about two to three years prior to that point. Some people feel this was in about 66 AD when he wrote the uh, text. Um, What's important, though, is he had three areas that he wanted to cover. In chapter one, he wanted to talk about our exhortation to spiritual maturity. He challenges believers that you have to grow in Christ. If you are a believer, you cannot affect your salvation, but once you are in Christ, you can affect the growth you have. Therefore, he says, again, make every effort. He also wants to denounce false teachers, false teachers who said, you know what, you can live any kind of life that you want. You can live a life of debauchery, but it's the knowledge that you have that's going to save you. That's not really what God says. The Gnostic heresy was one that you had a mystical knowledge that could protect you and shield you. You could do what you want because physical things aren't going to affect the spiritual world. But that's not true. And then finally, he anticipates Christ's return in chapter 3. And so think about that. Peter, before he probably is getting ready to die and he's in prison, and Nero is the emperor, he is establishing the fact that, hey, you need to grow in Christ, you need to denunciate false teachers, and you need to anticipate Christ's return. So as a swan song, it reminded me of something. I don't know about you, but I always love to hear statements of people that have lived kind of a robust life. Whether it's been a foolish life and they look backwards and say, you know what, when all is said and done, this is what I learned, or they lived a very profitable life but still gave me the essence of what they thought. Let me share some examples, some from the scriptures and some not. Uh, Think about King Solomon. At the end of his life, he said, hey, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And that was in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Moses, when he had finished speaking all of his words to Israel, he said to them, take into your heart all the words that I tell you today. Tell them to your children so they may be careful to do all of the words of this law. This word is of great worth to you. It is your very life. And by this word, you will live long in the land and you are crossing the Jordan to take. In Deuteronomy 32, Paul said, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And there's one that I've always cherished in my heart. It was from Tonto. And he and the Lone Ranger are surrounded by thousands of Indians and about to have their life taken. And the Lone Ranger says to Tonto, what shall we do? And Tonto turns to his friend and says, what do you mean we, Kimosabi? I digress. So let's talk about 2 Peter if we can. And boy, I'm so excited because this is Pete's little toy, isn't it? And I've often wanted to play with this toy, so this is my second time today, right? Matter of fact, I always keep thinking what would be funny is that, you know, Pete always has these diagrams. He puts a dot here, then he puts a dot here, and the straightest point between two points is a straight line. But what if we did a smiley face, right? We can do that. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there and say I can work it too. But let's go into the passage if we can. And we've got two distinct parts in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. 
The first part is God's part, and this is really important for us. So if you have your Bibles, get them out, please. If you have your telephones, this is a challenge for me. I'm an old Bible guy that I have notes that I've had for the last 30 years in there, and I see the, the telephones, which I do use. It's still an awkward transition for me, but I want you to get your text out if you can, and let's read along this. And we're going to talk about God's part in 2 Peter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle. Servant is the Greek word doulos, which simply meant he subjugates his will for that of another. So he freely gives it to the Lord Jesus. Second, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, that means because of Christ's atoning work and because God has imputed his righteousness on them because of what Christ has done, you have received a faith as precious or equal as ours. He's reminding them, listen, I might be an apostle, but guess what? Our faith is equal. We're on common ground. And I appreciate that when you have someone who was such an amazing individual, and I really love Peter. You know, I often think that I've got a foot-shaped mouth. I think Peter had a sandal-shaped mouth when he was growing up. He had a tendency to say things and kind of shoot from the hip, but I appreciated his passion and love for the Lord. I mean, think about that. Peter was the only of the 12 when there was a, a, a violent storm on the Sea of Galilee when he saw Jesus walking down the water and it practically scared them to death. He said, Lord, bid me come. And what did he do? 11 stayed in the boat. He gets out and walks. However, what happened to Peter? He starts looking at the waves and says, uh-oh, what am I doing? He starts to sink, but I love this. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and pulled him up. I love Peter. I love his passion. I love how he lived. Now, he goes on to say, he wants grace and peace be yours in abundance. How? Through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The knowledge that we're going to talk about is not the Gnostic knowledge. This is all about the intimate knowledge of who God is. This was the prophetic knowledge of, again, the Savior that was prophesied back in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve had sinned. And then he goes, his divine power, his divine power, right? Right? has given us everything. I love this one. It literally means in the Greek, all things. And it's funny, when you look up the word all in the Greek, it means all. Isn't that amazing? God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So think about this. God gives us everything that pertains to life, that's eternal life, and all things that pertain to godliness, that is living life out for him on the earth. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness that we need for a, a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is caused by evil desires. There's a lot in that passage. So again, verses 1 through 4 of 1 Peter deal with God's part. And let's talk about this. I love this quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He says, God sends every bird his food, but he doesn't throw it in the nest. Here is the key principle here. God has provided us everything that we need for godly living and for the Christian life, but we must do something to make it ours. Let me repeat that. He's given us everything we need for Christian living, but we must make it ours, and we must do something to do just that. One author wrote, probably the most important thing to notice in verse 2 is that God's grace and peace become multiplied in or through the knowledge of God. 
Peter cannot get past the second sentence without exposing one of his deepest convictions, namely that knowing God is the means by which his grace and peace become large and powerful in our lives. If you want to enjoy God's peace and be the aroma of his grace in the world, then your knowledge of him has to grow. You have to grow. Now, let, let me say this about salvation. We have no role in salvation except that God saved us. And by that I mean we cannot merit his favor, can we? What does the scripture teach us? For by grace you were saved through faith. Is that even from us? No, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no man shall what? Boast. We have a tendency to want to boast. Even the faith we have is not ours. So think of it this way. God has to save us because Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we were ultimately destined for damnation. But God saves us. God quickens us. God imputed Christ's righteousness on us to pay the penalty that was needed for sin. And as a result, Christ bore that. But then we have Christ's righteousness, but not because we've merited it, because God has given it to us. That's what salvation is. However, there's a practical side of salvation, and that's the sanctification part. We're now, yeah, we got to own up. We have to belly up, and we have to start being obedient. We have to grow in our knowledge of Christ. You see, grace is not a mere deposit, right? It's power that leads to godliness and eternal life. And where knowledge of the glory and excellence of God languishes, grace does not flow. The channel from God's infinite reservoir of grace into and through our lives is the knowledge of God. We do not study Scripture for its own sake, but because through it comes the knowledge of God, and through that grace and peace, they are multiplied in our heart, in the church, and in the world. So what's Peter really saying to us? A couple of things. First, in knowing Christ, we have everything we need for spiritual life. Everything you need for life and godliness. Life, again, is eternal life. Godliness is living life out in the world. The knowledge of God is all about, is, or the knowledge of God that we have is to know this. Our Christian faith is based on historical, objective, revealed truth. It's not mystical, magical, but it's revealed truth. And as soon as you were saved, you were given all of what was needed for your life to be godly. Everything. All we must do is appropriate what we need from his resources. His divine power, Christ's power, is the source of believers' sufficiency and perseverance, and it was given to us as a gift. It was a grant. It was bestowed upon us. And again, that emphasizes that continuing nature of what God wants to do in provision for us. You see, living the Christian life does not depend on one's own strength and resources. God provides everything the believer needs for spiritual life and godly living. However, godliness or true religion, to relive reverently, loyally, and obediently toward God, we have to, again, make sure that we are responding to him appropriately. It also says, too, in this passage that you become partakers of the divine nature. Notice this is, what this says is that we are actually, again, uh, divine in any way. It's not that we become gods. There's a, a, a national religion that's out there today that truly believes that because of their relationship with God, that salvation for them is they get to propagate other planets. They get to become gods. That's not what the passage talks about. 
We partake in his divine nature in that we have been saved from the judgment that would have been as a result of what his justice requires, and that is that participation in the divine nature is that we're saved as his children. We don't become gods. We don't become little Christ. That's not what he's talking about, but we do get to partake in that divine nature. Notice this does not say that we are actually divine in any way. Christians do not become again little Christ. We, do, we become like him. He makes us his children. He takes away our sin. He imputes his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5. His spirit indwells us. He gives us strength to be holy. He makes us a new creation. He gives us a new nature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And because of that, we escape the corruption that is in the world through lusts. And that really is the battle that we have, Right? We know the lusts are real, but we have to be able to, again, make every effort to challenge those and not be, again, succumb to them or by them. Remember, so long as we live in the world, sin will never completely lose its fascination for us, but in the presence of Christ, we have the defense against that fascination. That's a choice we make. And we must do that. So that's the first part. That's God's part. That's amazing that God has given us that. But then there is this second part, right? Now, this is what we have to do. And he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Again, add to your faith. Interesting choice of words there. And to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, mutual affection, to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is what? Nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. I mean, think about this. We've got nearsighted and blind. We've got ineffective and unproductive. So what happens here is, is that when we lose sight of what we have in Christ, you become useless. You become ineffective. You become short-sighted. You become blind in terms of the spiritual realities around you. We become like that song, wanderers, prone to wander. How many here have been prone to wander? I'll raise my hand. All right, I'm taking pictures so I can hold that against you sometime. All right, we've all been prone to wander, haven't we? But Peter gives us a solution in terms of how to address that. In verses 5 through 7, this is what he shares with us, right? The idea is that God has given you his life and all of his promises. Now you bring in diligence, making every effort, so that you may grow. The dominant biblical pattern is neither let go and let God or God has done his bit, now it's all up to you, but rather, since God so powerfully is at work in you, you yourself must make every effort. You see the difference? God is at work in you, we have to choose to apply that in our everyday world. As Paul said in Philippians 2.13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is what? God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, spiritual growth involves God's resources as the foundation, but also our responsible effort in addition. He says we labor for virtue because God has already labored for us and is at work in us. Peter is really challenging true Christians to not stop pursuing growth. Chapter 318 talks about that. He's challenging Christians to go on, to advance, to apply themselves with diligence 
to increase these things in verse 8. As Peter calls them, he actually wants us to be kind of have holy dissatisfaction so that we're always pressing on for that upward call of God in Christ Jesus, as, as the apostle Paul talked about. The key is this. It is the consistent witness of the New Testament that growth in godliness requires exertion on the part of you and me. Can I repeat that? It is the consistent witness of the New Testament that growth in godliness requires exertion on the part of the Christian. Romans 8.13 says, by the Spirit we must put to death the deeds of the flesh. Ephesians 4 says, it instructs us to put off the old self and to put on the new. Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the full armor of God and to stand fast against the devil. Colossians 3 says, and it commands us to put to death what is earthly in us. And then 1 Timothy 6 urges us to fight the good fight. And then even in Luke, in the New Testament, Jesus admonishes us again to battle. Don't go that wide gate. You've got to go that narrow gate. These are choices that we have to make as we go forward. What Peter is really saying is, you give all diligence. Make every effort. That is our job to do that. And I'll explain those in a second of the key elements that he wants us to focus on. But let me give you an example of a story that I read that I thought really maybe might wrap this up in a nice way. Glenda and Robert Lennon were four miles off the coast of Florida fishing alone in their yacht nice life to have. Glenda decided to take a swim and soon found the current had carried her too far out from the boat. She was in trouble. Her husband, hearing her cries without thinking of it, dove in and swam to her. But then he had an aha moment. He realized they were now both being carried out by the current. So did you get the picture? The boat is anchored. Is the boat going anywhere? Where are they going? With the current. I would not want to be out in the middle of the ocean looking at my boat, seeing myself move slowly away and not have any control. So they were in a precarious situation, but they made a plan. He would swim against the tide to keep the boat in view. Listen to this. Keep the boat in view until the tide ceased and he could reach the boat. She would save her strength and just float with the tide, but he would come and get her. Oh, I hope they had a good relationship, right? He fought the tide for six hours. He was swimming for six hours. Just as the boat was about to disappear, on that horizon, the tide turned. And his strokes carried him to the boat, but this was one exhausted man. The sun had set. His searching was futile. He could not find his wife. A little bit dark out there. The next day, on one last effort of search, the search party found his wife. She was t still alive, but 20 miles away from where she jumped into the ocean. What an incredible story. But here's what it illustrates, this. Christians who just float never stay in the same place. You can float all you want. That current's going to take you away. But you're allowing it to do that because you're not fighting back. You're not making every effort to move forward. Christians who disobey verses 5 through 7, which we'll review quickly, and not apply themselves with diligence to bear the fruit of faith, they will drift into great peril, and the consequences can be terrible. You see, we must strive even to stand still. The tide of temptation 
is so strong. Do you get the point here? These are choices that we have to make. If not, we will be carried away by the current of the world that we're in, and that doesn't help us as we go forward. So what are the things that, again, Peter wants us to talk about here? And let's talk about, again, make every effort to add to your faith. Well, how do we do that? Well, I'd like you to think of this, again, as kind of a ladder. I'm not saying you're going to follow these things kind of in a progressive order, but I want you to get the concepts that he wants us to understand. It's interesting that the first thing he talks about is faith. The last thing he talks about is love. And of course, if we add hope over here on the side, if you think about that, that's what we find in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Where faith, hope, and love all reside. But he starts with faith. He wants us to grow in our faith. He wants us to establish our faith. And faith we're talking about here is our saving faith in God. Next, he talks about virtue. And this is all about moral excellence. I feel like Pete. Am I doing a good job? His, it would, Pete would make a terrible uh, uh, doctor, right? Because if he's giving you a prescription, it's probably poison. I just can't read what he's writing. I don't know how a pharmacist could interpret that as well. But virtue is all about moral excellence. It's how we live rightly for God. Next, we have knowledge. That's our practical understanding of God's truth. Are you taking time in God's Word to understand what that is? How do you apply that? How do you put that into practice? Are you saturating yourself with God's truth so you don't get distracted by the things in this world? Or when temptation comes, you can avoid that. Or you have a way that you should be obedient and protect yourself and others by responding in appropriate manners. How about self-control? This is all about self-mastering, self-restraint, self-discipline, controlling your appetites. The ability to take a grip of yourself and say no to that which would pull you away from being obedient. How about perseverance or patience? This is your, the idea of Christian steadfastness, patient endurance in doing that which is right, especially when you feel like you are just being pounded as a result of it and you want to let go. How about godliness? That's your devotion to God. That's your right living. That's how you relate to others. That's how when you know what you should be doing, you don't think about not doing it, you go and do it because it's appropriate, it's right, and it honors God. Brotherly kindness, that's brotherly love, that's love for fellow believers, and then of course love is agape, that is God's love toward us. It's that self-giving love for others. Remember John 3:16 says, for God so loved the world, he gave his son, he didn't give a dozen roses. For God so loved, he gave. That's an amazing love that he wants us to be aware of. See, the Christian must show to all men the love which God has shown to him, even to non-believers. Even when we know that the world, like the, that the devil rules right now, is like that, devouring, that lion that wants to devour us and take us down. That's the world we live in. But God wants us to have these principles so we can stand. Are we willing to be like that family, like that husband who had the opportunity for six hours to swim toward his boat against the current in the midst of all the pressures and trials that were there? You think he did not want to give up? You think he just didn't want to throw his hands up and just go with the current? And sometimes we have done that. But you know what? I've learned this. It's never too late to start doing that which is right. We can get back in it because it's our job to make every 
effort as we go forward. So you say, Jeff, okay, so if we have this ladder that we're supposed to follow, you know, kind of follow these things, well, what's going to happen, right, if, if we don't do that? And again, he, he says, therefore, brothers, you know, he wants us again to not be ineffective or unproductive, not be nearsighted or blind. Let me talk about ineffective and unproductive. Two terms that are interesting. Unaffective and, and unproductive have implications in the scriptures. One could, could be indicative of an individual who's unemployed, right? If you had a job and you have services that you were good at, skills at, but now you're unemployed, you can't do them. The other also can carry a meaning of a non-believer. So if we're not doing the things in terms of growing in Christ, if we're not making every effort, two things can happen. We can look like an unemployed laborer. We can look like a non-believer. Uh-oh. That's scary. But I thought Peter was talking to Christians. He sure seems to be. Think about that. If we're not making every effort, look what the resulting effect can be. God saves us, but we have a responsibility to make every effort as we go forward. And then he talks about other things that can happen. You can become nearsighted, blind, and forgetful. And this is interesting. How many of you folks remember this cartoon character? I see those hands. God love you. We're old people. No, that was a great cartoon. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again, right? It was Jim Backus who was the man who played on Gilligan's Island, the, the wealthy family. He was the voice for Mr. Magoo for all those many years. But what I'd like to do is Magoo had a bad set of what? Eyeballs. And I want to show you the very beginning of the cartoon show that introduced Mr. Magoo. Let's take a look real quick. God bless Mr. Magoo. You never thought you'd see Mr. Magoo in a theological presentation, did you? What I love about Mr. Magoo was, remember, he, he, shouldn't he have died in one of those situations, right? The man was, he was nearsighted blind, but he wasn't completely blind, but boy, he was in places he shouldn't have been. And we chuckle at that, but isn't that what we do spiritually when we become nearsighted and blind because we've forgotten of the things that God has given us? We put ourselves in predicaments, and then we go, well, how, did I do that, Urkel? How did I get here? You got there because of choices you've made. If you allow yourself to be carried by the current because you're not making every effort, you put yourself in that position. It was a choice. It was passively indifferent, but it was a choice that you've made. All I'm encouraging you is, it's like even with old man Magoo, he should have been knocked off and the series should have lasted just as long as that presentation was made. We don't want you nearsighted and blind. So let's talk about that, and then we'll wrap this all up. So what happens if we don't climb that ladder, right? Remember, Peter is saying if you own these things, right, if you increase and abound in them, if you grow in these qualities, you will not be useless, you will not be fruitless, you will not be unproductive, but you can become short-sighted. You see, we can become short-sighted in life if we see things as they appear at the moment, 
but are unable to see the long view of how things could become? Have you been in situations when you're looking at the moment and you think, oh, woe is me? We have a short view, but we don't have that long view. Hebrews talks about Jesus who had said, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Did he want to do it? But the joy for him was the enduring because he knew what the result would be. Jesus had the long view. If he would have taken the short view, it would have been what happened in, in Gethsemane. Father, let this cup pass. I'm out of here. But he didn't do that. He took the long view. So I challenge you, don't be short-sighted, but grow in these qualities. And again, this also can have the idea of it means to blink or to shut your, your eyes halfway. And oftentimes, we shut our eyes to what we don't wish to or want to see. But we need clarity in terms of what's happening in our world. So again, we can grow short-sighted. We can also grow blind. To walk without Christ is to walk in the dark and not be able to see the way. We are thus left without his guiding truth to shine on where we need to go. Scripture says, your word, O God, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But the problem is with the person who doesn't strive toward all the fruit of faith is that he is blind in two directions. And think about this. If you're blind, you lose your ability to look forward to the future. It's all a haze. And the promises of God get swallowed up in that blur of worldly longings. You take what you have now that you can taste and touch, and you think this is all. And you blur the reality of our future that we have in Christ. Because that which is in front of me now blurs what I get from my goal of following after him. And I think that's what this means again when he's talking about blindness or short-sightedness. But not only does it affect the future, it also affects how we look to the past. Because look what happens. The forgiveness that made us so excited when we first came to Christ, we forgot it. You forgot your salvation, that you were cleansed from your sins. Many times when we think about that, all we see is an empty prayer or a meaningless ritual of baptism. Walking an aisle doesn't save. Saying a prayer doesn't save. Only God can save. But once he does, it's our responsibility again to make every effort. Are we seeing a, a trend here? And that's our choice. That's our opportunity. And then finally, not only do we get short-sighted or blind, we also grow forgetful. I mean, this is to close your eyes to the fact that you've been cleansed from your sin, you've returned to the dirty way of life, the genuineness of our profession of faith will be demonstrated only as we express these virtues. I mean, that's like getting a kid that's been playing in the mud. We take him in and we give him a bath, and the kid wants to go back and what? Play in the mud. And that's what we're doing. We have been cleansed because of what Christ has done for us. I don't want to go back to the dirt, but sometimes that dirt calls. And so what, again, Peter is trying to say here, if we don't grow in these virtues, if we are not maturing in Christ, let's see if my finger will do it, and it doesn't. I tried something that Pete can't do. Here we go. Again, the goal is, again, these are the things that we should be growing in. And it's not a checklist, but it gives us an opportunity to see if we're tracking appropriately. Are we growing in faith? Are we growing in virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness? These are things that are demonstrating, in fact, that we are in tune with what God would have us do. And then what he says in verses 10 and 11, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. 
For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not the magic kingdom. You're not going to the magic kingdom on the West Coast or out in Florida. This is the eternal kingdom. But again, what he emphasizes for us is that, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and your election. The danger that's described in verses 8 and 9, again, as an incentive to advance the fruits of faith is, is not the danger of slipping into the kingdom with no rewards. It's the danger of not being saved at all. When Peter says, be zealous to confirm your call and election, he means that our lack of diligence in Christian graces could be a sign that we are not in those Christian graces and that maybe we were not called. But what he says, if you do these things, referring back to five and seven, you will never fail. So there will be richly provided for you an entrance into God's kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is that? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, godliness, brotherly affection, love. These are not the wages that we pay to earn entrance into the kingdom, but they are a necessary evidence that our trust in God's promise is genuine and in that way, they are a confirmation of our call and election. Amen? Matthew Henry stated this in his commentary, those who are growing in grace and abounding in the work of the Lord still have an abundant entrance into the joy of their Lord, and they shall reign with him forever. My challenge to you today is what I started off with. God saves us but it's up to us to make every effort. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, thank you that we had this opportunity to be together. Thank you for First Peter. Father, thank you for the life that Peter lived and thank you for the truths that he shares with us. Father, my prayer is simple and what I've been praying all this week before I came up on this auditorium stage today is that you would teach me to make every effort. You would help me share the importance to our brethren in this meeting today to make every effort because this is your desire for us, Lord, to grow in that knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask this in his precious name. Amen.